0: Uh,
1: I'll try to, I have a couple of points on that. I'll try to keep them very short. Please identify yourself. Stephen Platzer. Yeah. Um, first point, talking about historical memory, today's to May 4th. I think today's also the 37th anniversary of Penn State. Is that right? Uh, since oh. That right. I want to talk about the Japanese paper. I had a lot of problems with it. Um, the paper was presented in terms of context. And since that, I don't know if the, the written paper released the presentation today, so I'll just talk about what I read today. And the context was framed in terms of the struggle between left and right at different moments in Japanese post-war history. I think the, the, real, the real context has to be between the pre-war period and the post-war period. And, put it in, and that it's not simply between different political groups, but it's between the state and society. Now if you go and you look at the pre-war period, the principle of education in the pre-war state was that there was a distinction made between what was called scholarship Which is referred to as what those of us in the universities do, and education. And education exists for the the sake of the state. There are two standards of truth. In the universities, it's between right and wrong, or between, if you will, truth and falsehood. Whereas in education, the standard is between what's good and bad for the state. And that was the standard upon which pre war education was based. After the war, the American attempt to reform education, to democratize, was to eliminate that power, to take that power away from the state and vest that power in the hands of the people, where people at the local level would choose their own textbooks. There would be no government control, no government censorship whatsoever. By the mid, when you start your story in the 1950s, by that point, the government had already, with the help of the, with the, help of, you know, of the politicians, but that's simply by the politicians themselves. The Ministry of Education was in the process of regaining its power to reinstitute that distinction between scholarship and education. And that's what this, I think the struggle is really good about. In other words, that the state has a particular vision. And its vision is what it calls its mission in the world, its world historical mission. And, and it's very interesting. You're talking about that certain right-wing historians were brought back into active senses. There were a particular group of, of, of philosophers at Kyoto University who were purged after the war because of their active involvement in wartime ideology about Japan's world historical mission to lead the, the East Asian world beyond modernity, <coughs> beyond the West. These particular individuals were brought back and inserted at the very center of the educational system. One of them became the chief textbook censor. He himself, with nobody else's permission, he had the right to control every textbook which was allowed in Japan, and he was doing it on the basis of this pre-war vision and this wartime notion of Japan's world historical mission. By the 1960s, by the 1960s, then after this power had been reinvested within the state, the textbooks were written on the basis of a textbook curriculum committee, which has a document which is all based upon called the Image of a Desirable Human Being. Which is written by another one of these these Kyoto philosophers, in which they expand upon Japan's world historical mission, and that's what's going on in these textbooks. And I think you have to see in terms of the struggle with the state's attempt to redefine the nation and to control thought on the basis of this distinction between truth and what's good for the state. And when you look at it that way, I think that it's a much more complicated. And if you want to really look at a Frankenstein monster, you know, of education, Japan is there.
2: Uh, let's first, perhaps, collect the, uh, the, a few, Stephen. or is there no nobody else who wants yeah. to intervene?
0: Yes. I actually have a point, mm-hmm. but I would actually like, since it's so different, uh, I don't want to, inter- because it's not, so it doesn't move. Well, no, no. Uh,
2: let's uh, okay. collect, and uh, I mean, uh, our panelists can then summarize. Uh, and, okay. okay. I,
0: I wanted to... Get To the last point about uh, uh, international standards and uh, the way in which universalism and particularism actually uh, develop from this kind of, uh, uh, as it is being uh, viewed through the textbook controversy, and uh, I think that one thing that we haven't had the full plate, but I think that if I can anticipate. Uh, what we see is we see a fairly homogeneous universal standard of what good pedagogy is, what good uh, morals are, what are the standards that we want, why, whether it is gender or other components of a good history, etc. So on the one hand we have a great deal of call for regionalism, localism, particularism as well as the essence and closer to people. On the other hand, we have this universal standard, so the tension between universality and culture becomes very evident in a very different ways, and that I think that the end, sort of, <coughs> the, the question of whether that actually enhances a sort of global capitalism or undermines global capitalism, or whether we, we have a different content of progress but the same notions of progress of where what we do, none of us is trying to do an inferior product to what has been done before. We're trying to do something that is better. So the content differs, but the progress as a structure is actually very much instituted in this kind of a frame. But I I guess that's sort of, as an opening, might be enough for now, I was uh, really interested to hear,
3: the um, argument about the in unchangeability of the past that it is being written in granite um, and um, I think it was a very much also a psychological argument by the way, and I found it very interesting but very often we hear now the very opposite namely uh, that um, whereas in the past the future was something that was uh, <coughs> uh, expected to change uh, now it is no longer the future but it's the past that we are all you know, ready to accept that it is changing all of the time. Now some of the reasons for this changing of the past, which is a really new phenomenon, is of course uh, the change of political systems. And this in, in Central Europe is, is a clear um, case, and we can see it after um, the fall of the wall um, everywhere. That, that's very obvious. But there are also other um, reasons for, for the changing of the past. And um, that is also um, the change of generations, perhaps in in countries that do not have a system's change, and also the, the pure erosion, maybe, of ideologies. So, how would you respond to those ch- uh, uh, motivations for change or reasons for change, even <coughs> in countries that do not have a systems change for a change?
2: Okay, I perhaps should say this was in Bakan and uh, this Excuse was Professor Alida Asman. So, um, Hannah, Annaschisler.
4: I would like to take issue uh, with you, um, Professor Engel. I, first of all, I certainly love the title. I guess
5: like everybody did in the school. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
4: Now you make a link. I mean, it is obvious that writing for schools has been selective as any. Writing of history is. Now, you make a very convincing case for the instrumentalization of the kind of selection that is being made in school textbooks for the regime, whatever it is. And you argue that with authoritarian or even or, or autocratic regimes, they can change things from the top down, as we have seen. Now, what is really um, I mean I would like to hear some some more thoughts from you on the what you say about the the textbooks in the ways that they select and the ways they keep omitting uncomfortable facts for the nation state what this says about the democratic process because that's very unsettling. Obviously, That is one question that I have and you, I, 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 I clearly can follow your argument and can, can see where you come from. The second question that I have is also for you. Um, the international NGOs, the international community has tried, especially in Central Europe be, after 1989 because of the resurgence of nationalisms. To be helpful, to intervene. Frequently, it had the outlook of some kind of benign imperialism, but imperialism it was nevertheless. And I would like to hear your opi- your opinion on these kinds of interventions, especially coming from Western
0: Europe.
2: I also have a question, uh, mostly concerning the uh, the Japanese paper uh, and what what what. Uh, I find just simply difficult to understand uh, uh, given uh, similar but quite different German history is the extraordinary investment in the nation uh, and why the extraordinary investment in the nation is resolved the way it is in, in a, it's a, essentially a repetition and re-articulation of a national imperial narrative. Uh, now I wouldn't say that the German narrative is so fundamentally different. It's very underhandedly national as well. But clearly, uh, what the German narrative and what the German textbooks show is that you can go in many ways to achieve, as it were, uh, not the same but similar ends. And and that difference uh, uh, of 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 a repetition. Of the past, as it were, as opposed to a reinvention of the past. Uh, uh, in the process of distancing, in this case, I mean, you put in the German case, you put your entire purchase into the distancing from mm-hmm. the past, mm-hmm. in order only to get at other pasts, like yes. Heinemann, democratic past, etc. Which is a good Japanese tradition as well, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed. So, um, I never quite understood what the logic of it is, and, and this logic, in a way, is important for all the kind of nationalizing for all the kinds of nationalizing cases, because they must not necessarily go the way we heard uh, they go in uh, a number of eastern and western European nations. Of course, here the case of France would have been quite important <laughs> to remind us of, of, of grand nationalizing. Histories. Uh, second problem is I find it difficult. Um, this is a question really concerning Niladri uh, to compare kind of the national histories of Japan with the national histories of India and, say, China. Because we, uh, we just deal with such different entities, I and mean, you deal with relatively small countries. Uh, not necessarily homogeneous countries, not by a sh- uh, by, by long shot, but certainly not the kind of deeply multi-ethnic imperial countries, if you wish, that you deal in the Indian case uh, and the uh, Chinese case and other cases, uh, uh, you know, once we get over into Latin America, this will become clear too. And I wondered whether we can really reduce the problem to one of national histories and whether we do not have to keep in mind the frame that we are talking about that is Japanese and German frame and other such frames are one thing, the frames of these great great imperial Russian, Chinese, Indian uh, and Brazilian History uh, is, is, is a slightly different, it's just a different vantage point. And in this context, of course, I mean, the equivalent uh, for uh, what you discussed for, for Indian history would indeed be some kind of European history. That, that would be the scope. And of course, there is a European narrative, which, is a, which we then, European histories have to challenge, which is the, the, the narrative of Western civilization, right? We'll just, uh, uh, I mean, uh, no, top I'm sorry. i of, uh, sorry. Uh, top of my question. Uh, Lastly, quick question to Niladri, uh, which is that, uh, you know, if you ended by saying that your committee's uh, provisional solution to the problem of past <coughs> historiography in textbook writing was to foreground criticality, that uh, everything was looked at critically. And uh, my question is: How do you ensure then that these books also allow the children who read the books or young people who read the books to look at criticality itself critically, so that yeah. criticality does not become another hard and you know, which sort uh, of then it's kind of standing for some kind of absolute truth, that that social constructionism is the only truth yeah. against the fact that you know against the, the point that everything else is constructed, but not social constructionism. Yeah. I'm Ray
6: Arsenault. I have a question similar to that, that for all the panelists. Uh, thinking about this, dis- this disjunction between scholarship and education was mentioned a few months ago. And I'm curious in these other countries that you're discussing, if you have something equivalent to what Francis Fitzgerald, who did the first kind of analysis of American textbooks in America Revised, about the complicity of teachers and educational administrators and textbook commissions in terms of this notion of levels of, of, of cognition. In other words that, that K-12 through 12 children cannot handle the truth. will uh, argues that we, we treat K-12 through 12 children as if they're mentally ill and that used that term and uh, I just wonder how much of, of a problem that is in other, <coughs> other nations as well, independent of the problems of, of nationalism, but just a kind of assumptions about the social psychology of, of, of children. I know where I teach, you know, and I'm visiting professor here right now, but in Florida, we have a state senator, Michael Fasano, who passed a law last year outlawing interpretive history in K through 12. It was buried in a larger bill, and people were trying to ignore it, but essentially said, no interpretation in K through 12. Just
7: the facts. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> yes along
8: with the, the critical thinking point, that the element I want to mention is about the examination system, because ultimately, for each kid, I assume generally in the world, the function, the primary function of learning, knowledge from the, exa- the text is to score higher in certain entrance exam. And so I, I would suggest that when we talk about um, the textbook we should also consider the examination system because if the examination system was controlled by the state or certain authority, then that means the knowledge you, a kid learned from the textbook should be reconfirmed through the exam. So, if, whether or not you are patriotic enough, whether or not you are critical enough, would be examined by the exam, certain would be text will be evaluated through certain examination and the, precisely the critical thinking is a crucial debate or issue that raised from several years ago when Taiwan, happened, um, when Taiwan had a, a new version of text, history textbook is that from 1945 to 2000 we only have one version as the official textbook so all Taiwanese were familiar with one version of um, historical narrative. But in 2000, we have a new version, because now it's a democratic society, of so and so on. So the government opened up. And suddenly, they have seven different versions of textbooks, though they were all written, um, following by the same guideline. But the project I was involved in is the examination system. We had a really difficult time to, to, to come up with the, the questions that for the college entrance exam. And because one of the purpose of this kind of um, multi-narrative of history, of national history, one of the functions is to develop the critical thinking of high school students one evaluation is whether or not they have critical thinking, But the problem is, if this is the exam, then there would be only one correct answer. Or a correct answer would be more practical than an open-ended. Otherwise, it's hard to ev- evaluate a critical, whether or not this is a critical thinking, or whether or not this is the independent thinking. So I think then. That causes a lot of problems, so I'm just simply just yeah. that. But very last that. question. Um, my name is Teju Kim, am in the Department of History, um, I have two questions. Very simple, and one question is um, goes to Professor Kim. Um, um, you divided that uh, three uh, the history debates into three periods: 1955 and 1979 and 1995. And I want to ask you why, on this brief uh, period around 1935 and 79, 95, those historical hi, history textbook debate was so important in the context of Japanese society, and you know, about the nations and whatever and politically. And then, second question goes to um, Professor Salman and why this uh, history textbook debate um, was not as much uh, as important as now. Uh, in the during the Cold War period, and now
2: it became the college industry in the international society. Okay. okay. Very important questions. Great variety of the. Please, uh, in the order you wish. Uh,
7: well. Which we probably keep it,
2: but sh- keep it short.
5: Keep it short. <laughs> um, I think in you know, the first question about you know the. Raised by Stephen, um, and I don't think I would disagree. And in other writings, I hear uh, some uh, some issues dealt with. And after in this paper, also uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the question of science in history, uh, from the pre surrender period to the uh, contemporary issues. So there are always uh, uh, ministers of education saying that uh, this text is too scientific, meaning that. Uh, Mark also talked about a little bit, you know, to, to write as if it is a historical novel. So historical novel is the sort of, you know, the paradigm we had, uh, especially wartime period. So and also uh, uh, the post-war history textbook authors had a hard time to break from that tradition to write a much more empirical history in the textbooks. But at the same time, uh, Minister of Education is always talking about the uh, more writing about the you know, more one or to write. So I think in I, I think in 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 the bottom bottom line, I, I don't I don't uh, disagree with that. But at the same time, uh, that that the focus of this particular paper is to provide answer to the uh, Michael's question: When, why? <laughs> so it is recurrent, and uh, I, I try to explain it because it is, well, interne- we omitted the international context about it, but you know, there are some internal politics within the ruling party, and whenever there is a disarray in the ruling uh, political block, uh, some nationalists got united and um, to attack textbooks. And then also there are real political issues Japan face about the constitution. And then whenever it that the debate, over the Constitution deadlocked, that the, the, the attack became the textbook. So basically, textbooks is a sort of uh, uh, substituting side of political struggle. Uh, rather than uh, talking about deadlock issue of the constitutionality of da-da-da-da, uh, they started, nationalists got together to attack textbooks. That was uh, three times repeated history. I don't know from this, one we can uh, draw any uh, sensitive conclusion. But I just wanted to provide that. And uh, underneath of it, it is always question of how we write a history, and we, whether, and uh, uh, when, why we, our you know Japanese people had a difficult to break from the historical novel paradigm. is exactly that is a myth of the popular myth, and actually 1970s. <laughs> Uh, A lot of, uh, not a lot of, but very uh, courageous educators uh, try to teach uh, what the uh, Japan committed to the student. But what they got from the parents was parents were not sure about it. Uh, One thing, they were not taught about like that. Secondly, um, uh, basically, there are grassroots populism and nationalism, which really argue it's not an argument, but it's a sentiment or a feeling against the teaching about the cosmopolitan version of Japanese history. So that uh, I know. I so in that sense, you know, I, I don't disagree. Okay, this is most. Okay, Yes. Okay. Uh,
2: any? Uh, uh, yes. i told we have to go to lunch at 1:20. So uh, not at 1:20. <laughs> <as> <laughs> I
9: so, <laughs> I'm, I'm allowed three minutes. Quite uh, far. Uh, uh, first, uh, I also welcome uh, Platzer's um, point. I think we, it is useful for us to look at the re- return of key figures, including those from the Kyoto School and others, and what we, we can look at from this angle. But um, I also, uh, I also don't see the uh, the major break. Uh, Uh, It seems to me much of the post-war system uh, is the pre-war system, uh, first under American control uh, and later returning to to Japanese hands. Um, In terms of uh, Michael's point, um, I'm not sure there's an answer to why the difference, but some of the whys that strike me as important. Are the different post war histories of Germany and Japan, starting with the fact that the United States kept Hirohito on the throne? And this made it extremely difficult for Japanese to re examine their history of imperialism, war, and war atrocities. Particularly prior to his death, he managed to stay on the throne until 1989 when he finally kicked off. And this put tremendous constraint. By contrast, and and with that, the continuity of Japanese governments uh, from pre-war to post-war. In Germany, the German government always had a powerful interest in distancing itself from fascism, as, as I read that, that early history. And 1918
2: this... tried, but didn't succeed.
9: Well. Uh, anyhow this this is a, a, yeah. a quick uh, seat of the pants uh, attempt to, yeah. uh, uh, to to put something on the table at least that we can come back to. Um, why um, was the text debate more important in the last fifteen decades mr. Kim uh, 15 years Mr. Kim asks uh, a very short answer there I think also uh, is a point slightly buried in our presentation, and that is that. The textbook issues moved from issues central to the Japanese debate, they moved to the international arena. Uh, and this gave a much higher profile and much greater uh, intensity. Um, when, uh, uh, when Japanese nationalists say we have to write our own texts and we have to take pride in it, and we can't, we're not writing for Chinese or Koreans or some other aliens. Uh, this, this raises the temperature. Uh, and it also means that the press, internationally, uh, follows the issues uh, much, much more closely.
10: Uh, <clears throat> three questions. One is the question of universal and the particular, and whether uh, writing textbooks in this form is always uh, embedded in a process where uh, certain universalistic ideas become, um, begin to shape uh, the project. Uh, and whether this uh, actually, uh, in some sense, strengthens the logic of global capital. I think it it would depend uh, a lot on how we think of the local and how we think of any of these universalizing pressures that you're talking about, gender history, uh, local history, a variety of things. I don't think there is anything Uh, intrinsic to this uh, tension between the local and the uh, global, which necessarily implies that it gets integrated to the logic of capital. It can, but it need not necessarily be. It would depend on how we actually insert ourselves within that process. And I think it is possible to think of this tension between the opposing thing as um, uh, a productive tension, which can be actually played upon in order to both critique um, uh, the process of state formation, global capital, as well as distance uh, allow us to distance ourselves from it, but ultimately, we cannot get away in some sense from uh, global capital we are all part of that process uh, uh, so a question of um, um, national unit, uh, units and territories, uh, comparison between China and India, yeah, I, th- I, I think what I was trying to suggest is that uh, we need not necessarily think of doing history within, frames of re- uh, within frameworks of reference where national entities are always the entities through which we look at history. It is important to look at national histories in some sense, but equally to break out of that and therefore what we try to do in many of our textbook is to organize and frame histories in terms of possibly themes uh, where we move from one region to another in order to discuss the theme of industrialization. You move from Britain to uh, America to uh, India to Japan, a variety. So you think of industrialization rather than think of Japanese industrialization. But the local variations and a variety of ways in which whether it is agriculture, industry, travel, forest, various things come in, those can be uh, worked out and thought about. So, what we are questioning is the inevitable uh, um, always uh, uh, whether we need to inevitably see territories and nation as the unit of inquiry, and we shouldn't do that. Finally, the point about criticality of course, if we fetishize criticality, it can become a problem, but uh, I think. Uh, unpacking themes and allowing a child to question the world within which they live is something which can help them uh, define their relationship to the world in interesting ways. Uh, but um, uh, criticality is not a theme which we explicitly articulate in the text. It's a way of how you bring in different narratives and juxtapose in order to produce a truth. It is not so open-ended. There is. Uh, particular way in that juxtaposition happens. I'll stop. Um, yes,
11: i Yes, I think I see four questions here I'll try to answer, uh, beginning with Virginia's question about when do the conservatives get mobilized to put a break on, on changing interpretations of history? I think two things. One, when they're feeling threatened. And I think certainly in the context of the United States, if we could talk uh, about the way in which the great conservative reaction of the last generation was inspired by uh, at the perception of a threat uh, over a period of uh, the last half century. And also when people are grieving. Um, in, in the region, in Central Europe, uh, people, it's hard for them to empathize and to be receptive to change that's self-critical when they still themselves feel like they're victims. Uh, and so I think the process of grief is one of the things that makes it more difficult in some areas. Uh, my own experience is that that the, the greatest victims, in the case of Yugoslavia, the Albanians and the Bosnians, are the most difficult to convince that they have these tendentious narratives. Um, changes uh, in, I, I'd like to speak with you maybe uh, in between meetings, maybe over lunch, about examples of change. Because building on this uh, earlier point, my sense, is that if systems are still in place and there is change, that it comes from a greater sense of security, I look at the poll's recognition of the expulsion of forty five or something as is- as maybe a, 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 an indication of the degree to which poles feel more and more secure about their own their own identity and existence. But I'd like to talk about that. One thing is maybe we've cast our nets uh, in different parts of the ocean here. I'm catching fish that talk about the resistance to change, but there are also fish out there that are showing. And so we don't want to be blanket by saying there is no change or there is a lot of change. Um, the the way in which uh, the ministries uh, in in most of the Yugoslav successor states certainly uh, they have competitions and then they authorize some books for adoption. Uh, the problem is in like in Serbia, for example, the Ministry of Science is controlled by the DSS, which is a nation, a non-fascist, Nash, extreme nationalistic party, very nationalistic party, and so it's very difficult if you're getting in, into those kinds of books that that counter that. You have to get through that filter. One of the problems in Serbia that talks about this control, it's a very centralized, it's a French model of government that Serbia has had since the 19th century, is in in the region of Vojvodina, which is the northern province, is very multi-ethnic and has a tremendous tradition of multi-ethnic tolerance and and sees itself as, as Western as Croats do in Croatia. Uh, nonetheless, the ministry in Belgrade dictates that basically the only faculty hired at the university are going to be nationals, and the department is not going to study things like multi-ethnicity, And the Vojvodina provincial government is constantly locked; it can't get the money to change with that. So, um, and, and let me something I overlooked in my talk is that when Milosevic comes to power, he comes to power on a surge of popular demand, popular feeling, and he's able to overthrow. This sort of communist or unity and brotherhood very effortlessly. Um, um, finally, a, a, and a, about the ministries, you know, local control uh, is a prescription of, of course, having further um, uh, accountability to democratic forces, to forces at the local level. I know uh, in school districts they want local control so they can make sure that their curriculum, their curricul- uh, their their textbooks are adopted. It reminds me in American history of the way in which the Southern states had book repos- had book um, uh, book adoption at the state level, which maximized the number of sales, and how we minimized our coverage of the positives of the U.S. Reconstruction after the Civil War, and minimized the horrors of the KKK and things like that, because Texas and Alabama and the Southern states so controlled it that there was a market that had that that you could address if you went soft on. Uh, on slavery, and you talked about the war between the states instead of the civil war. Uh, finally, on interventions, um, what I find in the region is that there is a small number of liberals who are very positively inclined towards what uh, the international community is trying to do, because we are their allies, but that there is resentment by the majority of people about this Western intervention. Uh, in the project that I run called the Scholars Initiative, what we have tried to do is short-circuit that by getting Native scholars to take the lead in writing their own history uh, in collaboration with scholars from other parts of the region who were formerly enemies. And then if Native scholars put their names on it, then you overcome the resistance to what Soros or, or the U.S. State Department wherever you're doing. And I frequently hear the refrain, well, we'd love you to do this, but don't. we don't want our fingerprints on it because it'll be discredited. If, if Western governments are seen as inspiring. So local ownership is, I think, important. And it's there they have to have the courage to step forward. Let ahead. me just
2: remind you there are two questions that I think are generally open. That is the question of international standards on one hand. Because I think that's a big issue, not just universal standards. And the second uh, thing that also concerns me is the question of the examination system and the fact that all these school books are there for credentialing and hence set standards. And how do you set standards while doing criticality? Criticality. It's a very intriguing (laughs) and very profoundly difficult problem. And we will convene again at 120. I think we have two problems here, not just one. Uh, first, uh, this afternoon session overthrew everything that we said this morning. Effectively, we went one direction this morning, and now that we move to the supra-regional, integrational history as the new challenge, America as a global power, Mexico and the United States as a common space of communication, as maybe as a, as a common space. Europe as an integrated space. and In the background, I have in my mind the thing you didn't talk about, uh, South Asia mm. as a common space, which is, of course, a little more than India. Not much more, but... <laughs> 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 <laughs>
8: uh, that kind of... Um,
2: that this is a genuinely flustering proposition. It's obviously, well, at this. Everything is everything thrown off? Why is everything thrown off from the morning? Well, because we settled, we seem to settle all the problems
11: <laughs> this I that
9: <laughs> anything settled.
2: <was laughs> we we <open> up <laughs> everything. But this set, uh, the second problem is in, in, in opening up a bit. Opening up the breakfast, after afternoon, we literally ate up all the time. <laughs> <we had> <laughs> <blast>. <laughs> so uh, I'm a little nonplussed. What to do? I, I would like to have a discussion. Sure. We should have about We should have a discussion, mm-hmm. and then we simply have to, well, as they say, soldier on.
9: <laughs> <How> about <laughs> uh, one minute each for uh, discussion. I mean, <laughs> each
2: question. Okay. If you have Short questions.
11: Okay. On, on, on. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, I don't agree that it's totally different. I think one thing we have to do is define what Europe is. Uh, Simone talking about Europe, uh, the EU is, is a different Europe than, than what has not entered they've just entered the EU. Uh, I would remind you that Europe was defined by Peter the Great, who decided to construct maps with the Euros as the official border. If there are those of us Central Europeanists who feel the EU represents a different type of Europe. And I think Simone's making the point, in the 19th century, you know, the Italians and the Germans, for example, and then earlier, date Western Europeans uh, had a much less secure sense of what nationhood was. And as this sort of feud has moved east, the Eastern Europeans now are, they are still insecure about their identity. And But a lot of the things that Italians and Germans were insecure about 150 years ago, they now are more secure now. I think we have to look at this as something that's time
2: as well as in space. But anyway, I'm not sure about you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know it's about to read about the news. There's actually, I guess, yeah. a, a discussion yeah. taking
7: place. Maybe I should maybe let other people get in the discussions. Yeah, I actually have two questions about the, the panelists. I have two questions for the panelists. Yeah, go ahead. Um, <laughs> I mean, was my name is Josef, I'm a graduate student here. And I wanted to thank presenter uh, for putting this together. I've learned a lot. I guess I have two questions. or One's probably a comment, one's a question regarding 1848. And I know that uh, Marisa was quoting from Tom Bender regarding the question of that the Americans wanted uh, the Mexican territory without the Mexicans there. Uh, However, I think, don't you think that needs to be sort of looked at maybe geographically in areas where, for instance, Euro-Americans overwhelmed the Mexican population like in Texas and California? There they might have had a choice, but in a place like New Mexico, where the Mexican-American population remained the majority well into the 1930s. uh, In fact, uh, I think that would be a bit different. I mean, they had to contend with the Mexicans. In fact, in just some recent research, it's been suggested that when the Repatriation Commission, after the end of U.S. Mexican War, was sent to Mexico to bring back the Mexicans, they were stopped by the American authorities. Why? Because, of course, they need numbers to then uh, lobby the Congress to get uh, compensation. State. Yeah. Right. And not That's only right. that, I, mean, I think there was some compatibility there. I mean, the U.S. Um, outlawed slavery in 1862, and Mexico doesn't an outlaw slavery until 1868 because they wanted to keep their indigenous slaves. Uh, So that's one point I think that I think is important to point out But I think, don't you think that needs to be looked at more geographically or regionally, right? Because ultimately, sort of following on what Mauricio was saying, there are some sort of western uh, compatibilities between some of these northern Mexicans and Euro-Americans. My second question, just very briefly, is uh, Mauricio mentioned uh, uh, Samuel P. Huntington uh, and the whole idea about the Reconquista. And my question is, uh, don't you think that that aspect itself needs to be historicized? Because in fact, I mean, what we're seeing now is that people like Samuel P. Huntington, these sorts of anti-Mexican sorts of books are arising at a very particular historical moment. You did not see these things, for instance, in the 1940s or 50s. I mean, nowadays, you have two books by Buchanan, right? You have Samuel P. Huntington. You have two congressmen, right? Tom Tancredo, J.T. Hayward, that are ultimately arguing the same sort of Reconquista line. And by the same token, the Mexican intelligentsia, right, has only recently taken um, uh, an interest in those Mexicans abroad. I mean, in fact, I mean, the earliest book that they actually wrote about migration was in 1929, and then there wasn't any more published up until the 1960s with the rise of the Chicano movement. So don't you think that the whole idea of the Reconquista itself needs to be historicized, and to see, for instance, the rise of somebody like Huntington, at a particular historical juncture, which is a response to this incredible increased influx of Mexican immigrants that has only taken place
12: since the 1980s? Well, I, I will, the, your first question, I think it's a very good point. I think the space does make some difference in Texas and New Mexico, they're very different places. And um, I guess I should take a closer look at, at all that. I would mostly rely on a lot of the rhetoric of the time, and the rhetoric of the time is powerfully uh, anti Catholic as much as it is a, a, an issue of skin color. I mean, it, either, neither one uh, quality uh, were, were, were much wanted. I also think, though I don't know the exact figures, and you may, that the totals of, of people in New Mexico was generally pretty small, even whatever their proportion of Mexican and, and Anglos. And I think that was less of an issue. Uh, but certainly to go all the way, the, the real issue is to whether to go all the way to Mexico City or not. And and that's where they pull back. And that's that would have been the heart of Mexico. The other question, I believe. Is for you. No, uh,
13: <laughs> totally agree. Uh, the only problem, uh, uh, the only thing I would say, what you say, we shouldn't be emphasizing that Mexicans from in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, uh, w- when we emphasize, just uh, because of the input of Mexicans, because the 1980s. Mexicans have been here, Mexicans were here, Mexicans have been here, always here. If we keep talking about the 1980s, like the new debate and everything, always, if you go to the 1880s, I have found, quotes against Mexicans and quotes in favor of Mexicans, depending on the economic, political circumstances. If you go to the 1860s, uh, the 1870s, in the wars, Mexico, Manuel Gonzalez tried to bring Mexican back and the Americans don't want it back because they need the labor force. Uh, If you go to the 1920s, you say that Mexicans didn't worry about it. I, I have a student of mine going, and I asked him to go to the main list of Mexican intellectuals from the 1880s <coughs> and 19th No single one did not mention that Mexicans were living. Like good arbitristas of the 17th century in Spain, they were worried that Mexico was not rich because people were living. Uh, and so I agree totally with you, we can forever, But not starting that the Mexican problem is NAFTA and 1980s, because then we defeat ourselves. With the food. Well, just a quick
7: follow-up, if I may, just a quick follow-up, I mean, I wasn't arguing that, that, the, that the migration was new, was new, I mean, in fact, we know that Mexican migration to the U.S. begins immediately after the Gold Rush of California in 1849, you have this influx. What I was saying, right, or suggesting, was that this recent wave, the newest, right, not the not a new, but just the newest wave in the 1980s, has provided the structural conditions for the emergence of people like Huntington. Pat Buchanan, and the likes. I mean, I think a much more radical position would be right, not about the Reconquista, but in fact, that that territory, a of the Virginia territories, was not Mexico's to sell to begin with. It was, in fact, Comanche land, or Apache land, or Pueblo land, or Cayovo land. It wasn't even Mexico's to sell with. They had never been able to sell with. I think that would be a much more radical position. Don't you agree? Yes,
13: but I'm not... Uh, uh, remember what I say about the importance of oblivion. If we keep talking about the origins, and, you know, what are the original... Uh, uh, Nothing will be solved.
12: Could I say something about Buchanan and the, the, the intellectuals? That's the other part of my book, the intellectuals. Okay, uh, I think, actually, that, that a lot of the emergence of a Samuel Huntington and a Buchanan has to do with, well, maybe I'll back up. There's a great correlation in American history of rises of nativism with census yes. loss of confidence. And there's a tremendous loss of national confidence in the 1970s with the oil crisis, that everybody thought Toyotas, now Toyotas have overcome, but they thought they were going to overcome. Then the, you know, the, the death of Vincent Chin in Chicago because it, it was a Chinese attacked and killed thinking he was Japanese, <laughs> okay, if he was Japanese in Detroit, yeah. So there was this sense that we were losing it somehow. The other thing that I think motivated a lot of this was the, it, part of the Chicano movement and bilingualism and things like this. this. Fool, it's a silly thing! I think. I mean, uh, as even Arthur Schlegner said, who wrote against multiculturalism, he says the idea that people who come to America aren't going to learn English. He says the whole world is learning English. Why would the why would the people who are coming here be the only ones who don't? <laughs> so, but anyway, there was there were a lot of internal things I think that were probably more important than the quantitative numbers. Although the, the numbers increasing were certainly an issue.
9: Uh, Very quickly, I've got about a dozen huge questions uh, that I'm trying to process from Mauricio's presentation, but here are a few of them uh, (laughs) to maybe put on the table. Um, If the past and the future is a past and a future common history, um, isn't this NAFTA? Second, um, I... Not that I don't like the concept; I I think it's very exciting to try to think this through. Doesn't mean the same thing for Americans and Mexicans. It's clear to me that the past and the future of the Mexican historical experience is a common history of the United States. It's not clear to me what that means for the United States. In other words, we're talking about a superpower and a neighboring power. So, how do we? What are the implications of your uh, of your thesis for how we think about American history as opposed to how we think about Mexican history. And the final one I'm fascinated by, but I guess I still don't quite get the power of your claim that race is the core of the paradox. Uh, why race? Um, what, what, is the, what is the racial difference that uh, racial stereotype, yes, but, of course, we Americans are this polyglot mix of, of races getting more mixed up all the time. Um, what does it mean? What, what is actually the claim about race as the center race? Wonderful present. stuff, I must
2: Just say. present to you. Uh,
1: l- maybe you should answer that Well, first, the, it's a very different question. Okay. The question
13: of NAFTA. Now, NAFTA is precisely what I, I uh, uh, what I you know, it's the consolidation of, uh, of the belief in the existence of two civilizations that nevertheless can exchange merchandise. Uh-huh. Cannot, uh, right? That's the premise. During the NAFTA negotiations mm-hmm. in the Mexican side, which I was involved uh, because they wanted somebody who knew something history, how to sell this. I have uh, <laughs> a good historical fashad, So they invited Canadians and Mexicans to say something. was specifically said, no mention of free circulation of bodies of citizens, because then mm-hmm. we don't get NAFTA. Mm-hmm. We don't get NAFTA pass. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I say that's the good. European case is an interesting, not because it's wonderful, not because it's everything. It's our epochal example of an exercise in which you can sit Germans, Spaniards, and French in the table and make all the mistakes you want. But at least they are accepting that we also include bodies in the table, citizens. We also accept a common citizenship which has never been even remotely mentioned in the Mexican-American case. We can talk about immigration reform, legalizing, whatever. A common citizenship, no way. Not now, I'm talking about 50 years from now. We we have this, we have that, we have that. Who is the main promoter of Turkey's incorporation to the European Union? The United States. Well, his his own private Turkey doesn't even mention. (laughs)
12: <laughs> uh,
13: so NAFTA is it's completely not the case. It's not even the symbol that Mexico integrated. It just did legalize what it was already there. I mean, it's NAFTA yeah. is no. Mm-hmm. Um, now, yes, that is at the core of my situation uh, of my thinking. It's very easy to. Although I have not been able to convince Mexicans that it is very important to study American history and to incorporate American history in Mexico, it is not difficult to convince them that the US is very important in American Mm -hmm. history, in Mexican history. Of course. When when and if I convince them whether they will accept to do this, I I have my doubts. (laughs) Now, for Americans, I'm sure if I convince them, they will do. Because as I was telling Professor Penter. It is the American Americans who got open a window, not a lot, but you know four or five who asked me, you know, let's think about it. It's interesting, mm-hmm. so let's think about it. Mexicans don't even want to talk about it. They realize and are aware that the U.S. is fundamental in Mexican history; that there is no Mexican history without the U.S. But they don't want to talk about any kind of experiment. Now. I would say that the way to go and make Americans understand that Mexico is more or as important as the issue of slavery, as England and all those things in their history, there are two ways. The first one is to avoid the power, the problem of power, because as American history show, okay, we are the only power. Why would we should should we worry about these poor people, these poor Mexicans? Well, in the, for the same reason that you know Vietnam defeated them, for the same reason that they cannot <laughs> defeat Iran, there is. Uh, uh, weapons of the weak. We are too many. So you, they, they, they might as well, even if they are so powerful, the moment they put a Mexican equals a terrorist, we are lost. And I go back to Europe. I don't want to use the European case as a goodwill. Europe was made possible by we have killing each other enough, the Soviet Union, and let's see what we can do. OK? Well, before we get to that point, can we sit at the table and say to Americans, yes, you are all really powerful, nobody, you know. Of course, it's much more important, Jamestown, than those Mexicans over there. I mean, Washington, of course, don't even mention, no, 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 Mexico is nothing in your history. But if you don't see us, it's, it could become a real problem. So, if the power issue could be solved by saying, you know, yes, we're weak, it's not the same power, there is an imbalance, but we are lost and you are lost. You win, we win. Now, the intellectual is more exciting for me. That is, how to prove to them that it's not for 1848 the interesting thing about Mexico. Is that in American intellectual, political, and economic history throughout the 19th century, and especially in the 20th century, we are linked. That is easy to accept to Mexicans. But it's very easy to define yourself from the war of 1812. Only until very recently. The very important a Mexican American war. It's became important in national history of the United. The importance it had in creating the generation of generals, the nationalistic ideology that created this nation after the during the, uh, Reconstruction. We, you just have to convince the students and so that Mexico it sounds awful, but you know, it's it's as England. You have to have it at present as you know. <laughs> That's why I mentioned Hollinger. For him, who is very smart, and I respect him a lot, it's very easy to say England, or it's very easy to say Europe, or even it's very easy to say with all the, the feeling of guilt, slavery, but not Mexico. Mexico is secondary. You know, it's, They are always here. They finally raised. Race is a, its not that I think it's, 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 it's a result, and I accept that. It's just that I think it's a very important. It's the way it has been seen. I think that at the root of our civilizational barrier. If you think that we, these are two Christian peoples, uh, have been Spain and yes, there are Native Americans. They are indigenous people in Mexico, but you know this is exactly <coughs> the same history. This is exactly the same kind of people. And nevertheless, as Professor Bender shows, and many others who have used this as an example. The Americans were in, in, in Mexico City. The American flag was in the National Palace. You took the best, why don't take the rest? <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of brown people. You can discuss as much as you want about New Mexico, but you know what, 5 million, 10 million Mexicans, brown people, what are you going to do? Now, we don't think that way now, but think of the very issue of Latinos. The very issue the way we talk about Latinos, race, Mexicans—it's always racially marked. For good or bad. we believe on that. <coughs> we just believe in that. <laughs> okay.
0: I, I'll, I think we should move yes. to the next session. I can bring up. Thank a you. Later.
11: Okay. okay. Uh, yeah.